just what you've always wanted, to be taught how to find the life you've always wanted, right? <laughs> well, I hope you have been enjoying your week of basking in the joy and the glory of an NBA championship. Yeah. I know I certainly have, because, uh, you know, I have to be honest. I mean, basketball isn't everything, almost everything. <laughs> but um, last Sunday night was, was absolutely um, surreal. Uh, it was an experience I'll never forget. Uh, I, was, I was 10 years old in 1964 when I remember listening to the game, uh, the Browns upsetting the Colts and bringing home an, um, an NFL championship. And I've been waiting, if you do your math, uh, 52 years for the next one. And, uh, and I have been waiting and waiting. <laughs> and it feels so good not to have to wait any longer. Yeah. And it finally came last Sunday night, a night that will live in infinity, infinity. <laughs> forever. One of my sons was with me. Uh, one of my nicknames for Heckard is a shortened version. Of, uh, I'm called Hex. And so when my sons and I get together, we're the Hex men. <laughs> and we get together whenever there's a great game on or a movie we want to see together because we're, we're best buds. And they just live a little while away from me. They're in Canton. And so we, we get together quite often. One of my sons was out of town, so the other one came over to watch the game with me on my big screen TV. And he brought along his son, my little six-year-old grandson, Jack. And we watched the game together. And uh, after the game, you know, at the buzzer, John and I, my son, are just jumping around like hooligans. You know, totally out of character for me, but, you know, <laughs> you got to let your hair down once in a while. And anyway... <laughs> But uh, we had such a good time, and we were bouncing all over the living room and shouting and just acting like idiots. But anyway, uh, my son John then picked up little Jack and was holding him and jumping and screaming and yelling, and, and little Jack just started to sob and weep. And, uh, you know, he could hardly get the words out. And John says, oh, I'm sorry, John, or Jack, I didn't mean to hurt you, thinking he hurt him when he picked him up. Jack, just in the biggest sob, says, oh, I'm just hell so happy the Cavs won. <laughs> Little six-year-old, he's getting it. He's getting it early. And I told him the next day, I said, now, Jack, when you're a grandpa someday, you'll be able to tell your grandkids that I remember back in 2016, I was at my grandpa's house with my dad, and we made a memory. But anyway... I was just thinking through the evening as I'm sitting there with my son John and my grandson Jack and watching a, an NBA championship unfold, I was really tempted to think, boy, it just doesn't get much better than this. I mean, this is the life. You ever had that experience where things just click in your life and you just sit back and say, man, it just doesn't get any better than this. I've arrived. I've arrived. The life I've always wanted but when we really look at this more closely, what does that life that you've always wanted look like? I mean, seriously. We all have our images of that good life. Sometimes we can't articulate it. Sometimes we don't know how to get it because it seems so elusive. 
But when it, when it all boils down to this, what, what is the good life? Is it the same for everybody? Is it, does it change with persons? Does it, does it change according to the season of life we're in? Is there, is there one life that's the best of all, the life we've always wanted? Well, I want to point you to a passage of Scripture in Colossians chapter 3 that I believe comes as close as anything to describing the life we've always wanted. And it starts at verse 12. As we continue our series, today we wrap it up in Colossians chapter 3, and we read these words. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. And forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you've been called to peace. And be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom and as you sing songs, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So what is this um, life we've always wanted look like? For some of you, it might be financial security, and this week you took a hit, probably, with Brexit and uh, the European Union and all of that. It just seems like when President Obama or some other world leader sneezes, the market moves, (laughs) and your whole reality can be surrounded or can be involved with that financial security. That's the life that I want. So some of us, that life we've always wanted revolves around that right person. Or maybe it's that dream house. I've been thinking about it and planning it in my head all these years. I'm finally going to see it. Or it might be a career when you feel like you've found the sweet spot in your soul and in your skill set and you've gotten a job that you've dreamed of. That's the life you've always wanted. Some of you think about finding the right church. You're visiting maybe with us, and you're already swept up in the spirit of worship today, and you just say, ah, this is the right place. This is the life I've been looking for. And then there's others that, uh, you know, the Cavs championship might come pretty close. (laughs) But I've noticed throughout the years in my life, my view of the life I've always wanted has changed and morphed with each season of ministry and life that I've experienced. And I kind of call it my it. You know, when I was a little boy, my it, if I could just own it, have it, find it, buy it, it, I'd have the life. I will have arrived. When I was a little boy, it was a bicycle. My dad says, you get the grades, I'll buy you that bike. It just consumed me till I had that bike. And then I found it wasn't it. (laughs) And then later on, it was a little league baseball. That was my it. And then I found out it wasn't it. (laughs) <laughs> and then later on, it was swimming. You know, I love swimming. I swam for, uh, in high school and at university level, and, and I love swimming, and I thought, wow, this is it, especially when you set a record or whatever, and you win a race. It doesn't get much better than this. And then there's other times when that life might look like um, 
Well, for me, a girlfriend or a car or that Miss Wright, which was Kathy. Don't tell her I said she was an it. (laughs) But as significant as she is in my life, I found she wasn't it. Not the it. To others, that's graduating from high school or going to college. Or for me, becoming a pastor, I will know, oh, I've arrived. I'm in the life now. I'm in the zone. No, that wasn't it either. Until finally I realized that the it for my life, and I say for yours too, is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The good news that the kingdom has arrived. Jesus has brought it. And it is available and real And I am asked and invited to become a partner in that kingdom life and to participate with Christ, becoming like him in the fullness and the flourishing of a kingdom-centered life. And Jesus, through his blood on the cross, shed for me and my faith that appropriates that sacrifice is the front door that gives me entrance to this kind of life And then it just unfolds as I come to know Jesus better, love him more, and serve him. The life we've always wanted is really life in the kingdom of God. Where things become on earth as they are in heaven. And there's a marriage of the two. So that my life exhibits an eternal kind of living that begins now and continues forever. The life we've always wanted. Now, as we look at Colossians 3, I think that uh, we also read here where the life that we've always wanted includes or involves three things. First of all, a new identity, and a new identity calls for a new integrity, and a new integrity involves a new consistency to my life. So let's unpack those, what what I'm talking about, and as it relates to this Colossians 3 passage. The Apostle Paul, first of all, says, your life in Christ, you have a new identity. That is, you are chosen, that is, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You see, those words, those concepts were used as descriptions of the people of God in the Old Testament. He chose the Jews, the Hebrews, who were slaves in Egypt. And he chose them out of all nations of the world to work in and through them to bring redemption to the world. He chose them. Why did he choose Israel? I don't know. That's above my rank and pay grade. (laughs) He is sovereign. And I'm content to live with mystery, are you? If you're not, you're on the wrong planet. (laughs) But he chose Israel, made him his own, adopted him. And now these same concepts that he gave to the people of Israel now are including us as the people of God on this side of the cross. So that we also are chosen by God, holy, that is set apart by God for God for his purposes, and dearly loved, dearly loved. 
That means, um, and the prophet spoke frequently of this, where God catches our tears in a bottle. He writes our names on his hand as images of how much he loves us. He sings over us. He dances around us. He delights in us. What's that do for your identity, your self-image, your self-esteem? It ought to just go through the roof. I am God's chosen. Now, I don't mean to be arrogant. Don't go walking around saying, I am God's chosen. But you are. We all are who are in Christ. We are chosen. We are holy. That is, made holy in position. That is, we've been given the robes of righteousness. So when we get... Uh, when we arrive in heaven, so to speak, God no longer sees us in our sin, but he sees the righteousness of his son draped around us. So we've been made holy positionally, but then we are made practically holy. That is where we participate in that, in putting on the right garments. Some robes are put on us by God, and then we put others on us as we walk with Christ and become more like him. Chosen? holy, dearly loved. That's our new identity. Once said about the Jews, but now because of the cross, all people, Gentiles and everybody, are grafted into that vine. And we've been made right with God and reconciled by Christ. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. But that doesn't stop there. Paul goes on and uses the word therefore. That means that that's a pivotal word. He's just been talking about a truth, a principle, and now he says, I'm going to pivot and show you how it's practical. So, given your new identity, given your status because of Christ and in Christ, now it calls for a new integrity. Now, what do I mean by integrity here? I tried to find this word that, that would help us understand that an integrity is a lot of times we equate it only with honesty. It's more than that. Integrity is taken from the word integer, which is a whole number, right? One number. It's, it's a oneness. It's a wholeness, a sameness. So when I say a new integrity, that means that my, my present life now has to take on characteristics that are consistent with my identity. Paul is saying, you have a new status, now act like it. Dress like it. And he uses the metaphor of clothing yourselves with garments. Putting on a new, having a new wardrobe. You've taken off your grave clothes with the old nature, the anger, the sexuality, the immorality, the lust, the slander, the malicious talk we talked about last week, filthy language from your lips, and so on and so forth. Those are grave clothes. They died with the old self. Now it's time to put on the clothing, the new self, the new clothes. And that's, there are a number of them here. It says, uh, clothe yourselves with, what's the first one? Compassion. Compassion. That means trying, learning to crawl into somebody's life and looking at their circumstances through their eyes and then doing something about it to help them out compassion, to be empathizing with them, to help them, being involved in their lives and in their circumstances. And then what's the second one? 
kindness. An unexpected word or an unexpected action at an unexpected time. Just being kind with no strings attached. Something you ought to be putting on regularly. Compassion, kindness. And then there's humility. Humility is is not just thinking lowly of yourself, but it's thinking rightly about yourself, accurately about yourself. In other words, you you know your position in Christ and that you're not to think more highly of yourself and put yourself above others. That's humility. That's another garment we're to put on as evidence of the new life, our new identity. And then there is gentleness. Gentleness is not weakness. It's not just meekness. It's not milk toast. Gentleness is power under control, like a horse that's been broken. And you can ride it around. It's domesticated. It's gentle. It takes you wherever you want to go. Just move the reins and it goes. But if it gets its own heart back and its own mind, it can buck you off and it can take off and stomp on you. (laughs) But it's power under control. That's the image that that Paul gives us here. Learning to be in control of what we have on the inside. That's gentleness. And then there is uh, patience. Patience. That means cutting people a lot of slack. The word discipline comes to mind. To have a long fuse, to be able to understand the frailty and the brokenness of people and learning to roll with that. And then he goes on and says, which verse 13, he says, bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. I think these are qualities of gentleness and patience. So what does it mean to forbear or to bear each other's, bury their up? And, and it says, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forbearance and forgiveness. Wow. Those are tough ones. To be able to bear with somebody. Even though they don't agree with you, you don't see eye to eye, you don't think the same way, you don't like the same things, and you just don't get along, Paul says, no, no, that's not the way it's supposed to be. That's not integrity. That's not a wholeness that matches your new status and your identity. No, you bear with each other. And if you've got grievances, you find a way to work them out. You find a way to work them out. You see, another word of uh, idea of this integrity is, I used to teach my students this, integrity is when what we say matches what we do. How many times have we said the church is full of hypocrites? Hypocrisy is when I say this, but I do this. And the farther these two are away, the lack of integrity I have, or the lesser degree of integrity But the more consistent I am, the more honest I am, and match what I say with what I do, the higher level of integrity I have. Until ideally, there's one. Oneness, wholeness. That's integrity. And so Paul is saying, your way of life, the garments that you put on, your characteristics have to match who you are in Christ. They have to come together as one. So dress the part. Be consistent. Dress accordingly. You know, I served a number of presidents at Malone University over the years, and with each new president, you get a whole different set of expectations based on his experience and what his desires are. 
And uh, this one came along, and, and uh, we had gotten under the old president. We'd gotten along pretty casually, the way we dressed and this sort of thing. And so we, we began to ask this president, you know, how would you like us to dress in the cabinet or, you know, the administrators of the university? And he said this. Of course, he was, I mean, his dress was spot on. I mean, it looked like he walked out of a GQ <laughs> magazine issue. I mean, a crisp bow tie and starch shirt and perfectly ironed pants. I mean, it was unbelievable. Every day that way. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, you are employees of a $40 million enterprise. How do you think you should dress? <laughs> All right, we got the message. We got the message. Dress consistently with who you are. And so we should be acting a new morality, if you will, based on who we are. Chosen, holy, dearly loved. Then that translates into putting on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And then don't forget love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Oh, and I forgot forgiveness. Notice that he says there's, he puts a condition. He says not just to forgive one another, but forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Now, that's a tall order. Now, when I'm really ticked at somebody and I read that verse, I'd rather chew on gravel <laughs> than obey that, right? That's a tough one. And it's not easy, never easy. But forgiving is giving up my right to hurt you because you hurt me. C.S. Lewis once said that forgiveness, everybody thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. <laughs> they like to talk, but it's hard to do. Paul says that's part of the wardrobe. If you're going to be in Christ, this is what you've got to wear. This is what you've got to look like. And forgiveness is a big one. A new integrity that matches your new identity. And then thirdly, a new identity calls for a new consistency. A new consistency. Now notice what he uses here after he comes with a new integrity, putting on love, which binds them all together. Let's look at that quickly before we go to this next point. Love is seen as kind of a belt or a sash. Paul's probably thinking of the long flowing wardrobe that most people wore in the Middle East at that time. It, it, it was loose fitting and it allowed air to come up and circulate to keep your body cool, kept the sun off your skin and so on. But in order to function through the day, you needed to hold those things together. You just couldn't walk around in these flowing robes all the time. You had to use something around the middle to hold it all in. That's what he's using with, with love there. He says, Let, put on love, which binds all these other garments you've just put on, holds them together in perfect unity. So love might be seen as the finishing touch that makes the most of your outfit, that complements all of those other colors and textures and fits right in so that we are the well-dressed person in our behavior, love. 
And you want to know how important love is in this mix? <laughs> Flip over to 1 Corinthians 13 sometime. And most, most of you are familiar with that passage, having been in weddings. This is always read at weddings. It's the definition of love. But it's interesting that it's not just any love. This is God's love, agape love, they call it. It's unconditional love. And it's also the love that we're supposed to have for each other, for God and for each other. And Paul starts in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, what's he say? I'm a noisy gong, a clanging cymbal. <laughs> I am a zero without love. So that means that love is greater than a religious experience. I can speak in tongues, I can sway to the music and worship in the spirit and this and that, but if I don't have love, it's a zero on the ledger. You're not getting anywhere. God have love. Next he says, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but have not love, I gain nothing. Or I am nothing. In other words, I can, I can know it all. I can be a PhD. I can have an IQ of 175. I can be the smartest man on planet Earth. But if I don't have love in God's book, it's a zero. That's how important it is in comparison with everything else in our lives, love. And then thirdly, he says, and I can have a faith that moves mountains. But if I don't have love, your faith gets you nowhere. Boy, that's tough, isn't it? And then fourth, if I surrender my body to the flames, presumably even martyrdom, I give my life for Jesus. Wow, could there any be any greater sacrifice than that? Or if I give all I possess to the poor? But Paul says, if I have no love, then it's greater than sacrifice. You can do whatever you want to do at sacrifice, but without love, it means nothing. So Paul qualifies these things. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Put love on with all that binds everything together in perfect unity. It's greater than religious experience. It's greater than knowledge, greater than faith, greater than sacrifice. By love binds it all together. And then he goes on and he says, all right, now this new integrity, this new wardrobe you're to put on that matches your new identity, then it calls for a new consistency. And I want you to notice in verse 15 and 16 and 17, there are three realities of Jesus here. That when they're allowed to reign in our lives, it allows us to live consistently, having been soaked in the presence and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's this look like? It says... Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of, of one body you were called to peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, first of all, there's two kinds of peace in the New Testament. There's peace with God that's achieved by the atoning death of Christ. In other words, his sacrifice for me and my faith in his sacrifice reconciles me to a holy God. In other words, it makes me right with God. That's the reconciled life. That's peace with God. We're no longer at odds. We're no longer enemies. We're one. But then there's the peace of Christ. That's a gift that we experience as our confidence in living in Christ increases. 
so that when we have the peace of Christ, it transcends all understanding. You can't describe the peace of Christ. You can't have it without the peace with Christ. The two have to go together. But when I have the peace of Christ, it's beyond human description. It guards my heart and my mind in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4. Let the peace of Christ rule. What's it mean to rule in my life? Well, do you know the word for rule means umpire? Yeah. Decades ago, there was a movie. I don't know some of you folks my age and older might remember William Bendix, and the movie was called Kill the Umpire. <laughs> well, you can kill the umpires all you want, but you know what? We still need the umpires because they've got to make the call. They've got to keep order in the play and in the game. Got to have umpires. Well, Paul is saying here, let the peace of Christ be the umpire in your relationships. Let it be the controlling feature. And if you don't have the peace of Christ and you're deliberating something, then you ought to put it on the back burner until the peace of Christ does come. That unites you together. We're called to unity and have peace among ourselves. And so that peace of Christ that transcends all understanding is the sign. It's the indicator. And then there's the, the word of Christ. Let it dwell in you richly. Now, to, word, to, to look at the word dwell means to move in as a permanent resident, to be at home. Is the word of God resident in your life? Is it prominent in your life? I love to talk to med students because I, I like to converse with them and ask them how their study and practice of medicine has influenced their worldview. As they study the cell and they study the formation of the eyeball and all these other things about the body, does that influence your worldview? Are you a deist or are you a theist? You know? And I remember talking to one young lady she was a med student, brilliant girl, brilliant girl. And I don't know, we got off on a, on a rabbit trail, and I said something about um, the Ten Commandments. I said, do you know the Ten Commandments? And she says, no, I couldn't tell you, tell you two of them. And I said, what? And I kind of said it tongue-in-cheek, but I meant it. You, you've memorized hundreds of muscles, hundreds of bones, hundreds of processes in your body. You've studied the cell inside and out. You know just about everything about that human body and what makes it work and what heals it. But you can't tell me two of the Ten Commandments upon which all Western civilization is based? She says, no. What does it matter? I thought, God help us if that's where our education is going. <laughs> There's room for both. There's room for both. But allow the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, deeply, intentionally. Read it for information and transformation. Study it. Memorize it. Really. I mean, I'm serious. And people will come up to me and say, well, I can't memorize scripture. And I say, well, you memorize songs. You memorize movie quotes. You memorize recipes. <laughs> Don't tell me you can't memorize scripture. That's what it allowed to move in and make, take permanent residence within me. And as it's woven into the fabric of my life, it begins to control all my thinking and all my actions. 
letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly. And then finally, there's the name of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule. Let the word of Christ dwell. And in the name of Christ, do. And he says it three different ways so we don't miss it. He says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Well, how much are we to do in the name of the Lord Jesus? All. Everything. Well, that's a tall order. How do I do that? And what does it mean? To do things in the name of Jesus meant to do things in his character. That is, as he would do them if he were in my place in any given moment. It's not only asking the question, what would Jesus do, but how would he do it? And then me doing it consistently, letting it flow through me as the peace of Christ is to rule and the word of Christ is to dwell. So the name of Christ is to motivate me to do everything in his character. So let me ask you this. What's it like to wake up in Jesus' name? You know, you've heard it said there's two kinds of people in the world, those who love to get up early and those who love to hate those who get up early. <laughs> How do you greet people in Jesus' name when you see them first thing in the morning? What's the tone of your voice, the expression on your face? Are you, at, are you saying, good Lord, it's morning, or good morning, Lord? Are you waking up in Jesus' name? Are you greeting people in Jesus' name, doing it in his character? How would Jesus eat? I tell my students at Malone that when you eat the next time, try chewing. <laughs> Most of them, they're in such a hurry, they're just pouring it down and they swallow it. They're not even tasting it. I think eating can be a form of worship, savoring the moment, enjoying the moment. What would it be like for Jesus to shop? I can see him walking through the aisles and touching the fabrics and appreciating the colors and the textures and the craftsmanship and just rejoicing and worshiping. How would he drive? What would it be like to drive in Jesus' name besides drive the speed limit? <laughs> or let that guy in who just, you know, or the guy who cuts you off in traffic. What would Jesus say? You know? And then how should I do that? Practice it, and it can happen. What would Jesus do with technology? What would he do with reading? What would he read? What would he watch on TV? What would he listen to on the radio? How would he handle technology? And the list goes on and on. How should we go to sleep at night in Jesus' name? Can we go to sleep in peace? That God has the universe in his hands, and he does not sleep. And he's standing guard over me. And I will lie down and sleep in peace for you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Psalm 4.8. So in the name of Jesus, do everything. And notice that in all three of those, it mentions thanksgiving. It should all be woven in as, as being grateful. Being grateful in all circumstances, for everything and everybody. So as we wrap this up, let me just say this. It really comes down to what we're willing to do to 
to grasp the life that we've always wanted. Here it is. It's the kingdom kind of life in all of its fullness, in all of its joy and love. But guess what? God leaves it up to us to choose. You know, as it's said that St. Augustine once said that God gives the breeze, but it's up to us to set the sails. So God gives us the truth. He gives us these principles, but we are the ones that have to set the sails to see the results and the direction that God wants us to go in. So I pray that will be true of us. And Colossians chapter 3 shows us exactly what it looks like and how to do it. And so I pray that this week you'll ponder some of these thoughts your new identity that calls for a new integrity and a new integrity that calls for a new consistency. May it be so. Amen. Amen. Will you stand and join us as we sing a song together when we sang earlier? Putting Christ at the center of all we do. The hope is built. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Sing it out. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong in the Savior's love. Through the storm, He is Lord, Lord seems to hide his face. I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. My anchor holds. My anchor holds within the veil.